You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. I want to introduce you to a special guest this week. Dr. Susan Merrills is an affiliate assistant professor of leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary. She's a past president of, of the Academy of Religious Leadership. She's a wife and mother of two emerging adult children. Dr. Merrills has meant so much to my growth and development as both a pastor and a scholar. She has shown over the years that she believes in me. And anyone would agree that this is one of the most important factors in a person's success. Having people in your corner who believe in you, not just in words, but in action by investing in your life. The first opportunity I had to present at an academic guild was because of her influence and vouching for me. This led to my first published article in an academic journal. She's one of my favorite people to talk to and learn from. She's insightful, she's humble, and she's encouraging. I'm excited for you all to listen to and learn from this conversation. Would you welcome to the episode, to the podcast, Dr. Susan Merrills. Susan, Dr. Merrills, I'll be, use, I'll be using that interchangeably. And uh, welcome to Intersections. Um, I, I, I already shared earlier in the intro that um, what you mean to me, who, who you are to me. Um, I'm grateful that you are available and willing to come on. Um, to me, you're a, a teacher and a mentor. Um, going all the way back to 2007, my first class in um, studying theology in Bible college at the King's University. Um, so you've been a part of my journey for quite a while and have had a tremendous impact on my life. Um, I'm still trying to get used to Susan. <laughs> you, uh-huh. you, you'll forever be Dr. Merrills, but I'm gonna get used to saying Susan. But I, I know you, um, we've had many conversations over the years, you've poured into me um, many times, but I want my the, the listeners to have some context as to who you are before we get into the deep waters. Um, wait, tell us a little bit about where, where you're from, what were your ambitions when you were younger, you know, all the good stuff, all the juicy stuff, uh, the fun facts about Susan Merrill's. Oh my, the fun facts. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tabi Allen. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to call you Dr. Allen no matter where, anytime, once once you <laughs> reach that milestone. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, but thanks so much. Uh, let's see. Things that might be helpful to know about me. Um, one, I'm not sure you even know that I was born in South Carolina. Did I, did I, I did ever not, tell you that? I did not know that. I was born in South Carolina, but I probably spent all of maybe two months of my life there. So it's kind of hard to say I'm from South Carolina. What part? Um, my folks at Greenwood. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, town about 20,000 that's south of Greenville. I got a good friend of mine um, from Greenwood. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I don't, I was too young. I don't have memories of <laughs> Greenwood, South Carolina, but that is where I was born. Um, my folks were missionaries in Brazil, and they were in the U.S. on furlough uh, when I was born. And so they returned to Brazil, and that's where I spent my 
about for six years of my life. So very formative early experiences in that context. Um, my family returned to the U.S. and moved uh, eventually to um, Southern California. And I've spent the majority of my life in the Los Angeles area um, from that point. So from first grade onward, okay. um, really, most of my life has been in Southern California. Uh, probably what would be helpful to know, just uh, descriptions of people to understand I come from. Um, I identify as a white U.S. American cisgendered woman, come from, um, definitely have been shaped by conservative white evangelicalism. Um, I, I wouldn't have described it. I wouldn't have used that term. Um, up until recently, I would more have described myself theologically as a charismatic reform Wesleyan Anabaptist. Okay. Um, all of those threads and traditions were very, uh, each in their distinct ways, were really formational of my theology and my understanding of who God is and who God has called me to be in the world. Um, but over the last, particularly the last six or seven years, um, been on a wild ride, the backside of the wilderness with the Spirit of God, um, mm. leading me into a much deeper journey of pondering my racial, ethnic, cultural identity and the impact of that on my work, um, the impact of that in my community. It's changed how and where I and with whom I worship. It's changed how I am in the classroom. Um, not that it was a wholly new thing. You know, there was so much in my life that I would say led up to that. Um, but, but it's been a very um, profound shaping journey uh, in the season of time. I am an educator, um, been teaching for 25 years, coming up on 25 years. My primary love is adult learners, um, in-service leaders. My passion is for the formation of Christian leaders, um, helping women and men you know, really perceive God's fingerprints in their lives and discern what is God inviting me into in this season. Um, that has been a passion for a long time and it's taking this new much more um, um, stronger emphasis on justice um, in this last season of time and what does it take to sustain your life of faith to sustain your soul in the pursuit of justice in the pursuit of um, uh, to um, do justice love mercy and walk humbly with God you know mm -hmm. what is that what does that take to to walk that as a marathon, um, pressing into that, uh, what Dr. King talked as that long arc uh, of justice in the universe. Um, it, it, it seems long and in, in terribly slow. So yeah. how, do we, how do we be sustained yeah. uh, in our souls? And I would imagine as a, a child of missionaries, um, that you you may have gotten or at least discerned a calling for ministry early on. Um, mm. I may be wrong in that. Um, what, what was that like for you in terms of discerning your own call? When, was there a moment? Was there an experience, an encounter? Or did you always kind of know because you were so immersed in, in, in that, that context? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I, I, the... 
the mental model, the dominant mental model um, in my church was the moment, you know, the burning bush, the the handwriting on the wall, the, you know, the angelic visitation, mm-hmm. Samuel showing up and anointing you and saying, you're king. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was, is that, that was such the dominant mental model. I've really come to understand it as God works in our lives across a lifetime. And, and I can look back and trace the thread of God's work throughout my childhood. So there were so many things that were formational um, about being a, a missionary kid, about even when we were back in the U.S., you know, about my, my parents' um, attitude of we, are, we participate in a community of faith and where we are blessed, we serve, you know. And there was just so much about that that, that shaped my, my, my pressing into being part of God's God's work in the world, you know, that formed me in really wonderful ways, um, also formed me in some ways that have been toxic and that have been part of God's process in my life in these last few years, you know, undoing the toxic parts of things, but, but some really good ways. I, 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 I had such a strong sense, it's such a desire to leave an impact in the world, and, and I think that was really mixed. Um, you know, there was part of it that was just like, I want to be famous. I want people to know me. You know, I want to live a life that people will write biographies about. You know, it was this sort of, um, and, and then when, when I, I had a more specific sense of call, you know, it was, it was I'm going to change the world for Jesus. You know, and it was, it was, there was a lot of passion and drive that um, was just a mixed bag uh, yeah. of, some of it was came out of my, feeling over overlooked and unseen and and wanting to uh, rectify that and some of that came out of what was really genuinely God at work in my life and and I look back on that now and, and God used it all God took it all you know and and sifted it and continued to form me but there certainly was in terms of like a moment um, there was a moment at a at a prayer meeting on my 21st birthday which sounds so spiritual i was at a prayer meeting on my 21st birthday but um, it was it was a co- it was a collection of of churches and um, i was in the choir in my church at that time a, a, a young adult choir and we were kind of the core of the choir this joint choir so it's kind of there's no point in having a party when all of my friends are in the choir so i was at a prayer meeting on my 21st birthday Jack Hayford was the MC, um, and at the end of the meeting, he paused. He was bringing the meeting to a close, and he paused and said uh, something along the lines of, "You know, I hadn't planned on doing this, but I just feel really prompted by the Spirit uh, that if you sense God calling you to leadership, you know, I want you to come forward. I want I want you to pray. I want to pray for you." And and it was this moment that just remains so vivid in my memory of. My, my life flashing before my eyes, seeing, you know, God kind of reviewed, here's all that God had done to bring me to that moment. And, and it was a sense of choose, choose you this day whom you will serve. You know, the, the, you have a free, you can freely choose. Um, and so that was a really profound moment. Um, I heard leadership, I interpreted pastoral leadership because mm-hmm. that's just like leadership's pastoral ministry, right? That's yeah, like yeah. somehow yeah. in my mind, you know, those two were, were interconnected. So probably the better part of the rest of that decade, um, certainly through my 20s, probably less so into my 30s, I assumed I was going to go into pastoral ministry, um, but discovered that, no, not so much. That was no, no. Interning, doing my MDiv and interning um, in the office of the executive pastor of the church on the way, I discovered uh, pastoral ministry is not quite what I thought it was. You know, I had this 
image like a lot of people do that most of pastoral ministry is preparing a sermon and preaching it on Sunday. And, and I discovered, um, no, no, that's not what it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and the opportunity opened up for me to teach a class at what was then just had been formed as the King's College at the Church on the Way, I teach a leadership class. Um, and I did, and it was, it was just, I landed, you know, I loved it. It was, it was, um, the door that had opened and, uh, through a series of divine coincidences, you know, nothing, it was nothing spectacular, um, but just each thing that had to line up for that to happen is I so see God's providential hand in making that possible and started teaching. That was 25 years ago. I'm still teaching, um, just, I, I, there's that pastoral side of me. I, yeah. I care deeply about the formation of people, yeah. um, deeply about them leaning into God's calling and, and purposes in their lives. Um, so there's that strong pastoral line, but, but my primary location, uh, primary role has been uh, in, in, in the classroom as an educator and as a mentor. That that's amazing. I, I see some some parallel, some overlap um, with with my call as well. Um, I had yeah. the moment thing. I had the the burning bush moment, and it just so happens that it was the same. Well, I had a series of moments, like very profound. This is I didn't know at the time, but this is God. Mm, um, yeah. But it was it was at a, a a midweek Bible study, and there was an altar call. For those who felt the call to ministry, yeah, and similar to to yours, and I, I did not budge. I had a friend that kept elbowing me. She kept nudging me, saying, "You know God is calling. You know God is calling." And I'm like, "He's not calling me. Maybe you, but not me." And I had these thoughts in my head. I'm not ready. I have too much stuff going on in my life. Um, I need to get this right. I, I had very specific things I was thinking, and I lied to you not verbatim. Pastor, who would, then would become my mentor, who I didn't know at the time, had never met him until after that service, he began to say those things, those thoughts I had in my head verbatim. Uh, and I just broke down in tears. And that was the beginning. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that was the beginning. But to your point about God working over a course of a lifetime, that too, yeah. that change, that class leadership development changed my whole paradigm, my whole mental model for what it meant to be called. And I began to teach what I learned in that class. I began to preach it and share it in mentorship um, settings and, and teach it that, that, that timeline that you had us yeah. do. I don't know if you remember, we did a timeline of these yeah. moments and I still use it to this day, but it, it changed the mental model where I was looking for the next moment mm. rather mm. than understanding how God is operating like daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, even in the, in the subtle ways, in the small ways, those divine coincidences, like, as you just shared. And um, one of those um, moments or, or a series of moments, I should say, led me to what I'm doing now. I just didn't realize it at the time that I would be doing this work. Yeah. And I, I too thought it was pastoral ministry. And I did that for 15, 14 years full time. 
and so on and so on. But it's, it's, it's encouraging to hear your journey, to hear your story, and then to juxtapose that next to mine and say, okay, okay, this is affirmation, this is confirmation on, on how God um, can operate in our lives and, and form us and shape us. Yeah, I, I am not sure where the notion that we have to get one trajectory established, have the ultimate knowing that sets the pattern for our entire life, or else we're just going to go off the rails and do nothing and, yeah. you know, be, get a, go away from me, you unfaithful servant. You know, at the end of, I don't know where we get that notion. Um, but, but to be able to see, no, God works patiently, consistently, quietly, sometimes loudly, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes God is less, a whole lot less interested in our knowing than we are in our knowing. Mm -hmm. Like we crave certainty and, and God's yeah. like, no, nah, <laughs> nah, nah. I, I want you to walk daily. That that's yeah. really, yeah. And, and trust me, yeah. take the next faithful step and trust me. And so I, I, I think those the wanderings and the, the coincidences and the things that we try and, and all of that, nothing, nothing is wasted. Um, obviously, if we're, if we're pig-headed and rebellious and prideful and willful, obviously we can get ourselves in a whole lot of hot water, but God's redemptive creativity is just so vast. Um, I, I, we, we live so much in anxiety about our calling that, that is comes from cultural messages and our internal brokenness, not from a biblical model or from God's, the work of God in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to transition just a little bit um, and kind of segue some things you said, I think segues to the next question. You talked about being deeply concerned about um, how God forms your students, how God is forming mm -hmm. people. So there is that pastoral side of you that comes out in the classroom. As um, um, one of my favorite professors, and I'm sure your good friend and colleague, Dr. Hunsinger, would, would, would yeah. say, be, uh, what does he say, be teacher pastors in the classroom. He mm -hmm. said that out when we graduated. Instead of just being pastor, teacher, he flipped it and he said, be teacher pastors. So be pastoral in the classroom. And, and I see, I experienced that with you. Um, we're, we're in some challenging times. Um, I think all of yeah. us can agree. The last 12 months or so, maybe a little bit longer, 13 months or so, have been really challenging. Um, and I think every, every era, every generation can probably say that. You know, every generation says, this is the most challenging time. It's a catalytic time of, 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 of our history. Um, how have you handled the past 12 months, there's going to be a lot packed in these questions, so I can give it to you, you know, one at a time, mm -hmm. particularly as a wife, a mom, and a teacher who helps others. How have you handled the last 12 months? Um, let, let's start there, I'll, and I'll throw some other questions out after that. Mm -hmm. um, I've handled it by breathing in and breathing out and repeat. Mm. You know, mm. it's, this has been... Um, Quite a year, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, as a as a wife, as a mom, um, we have my husband and I have two emerging adult kids. You know, a senior in high school and a sophomore in college. And in our college age, um, 
kid was really glad to be off adulting, you know, and, and then now he's at home doing school from his bedroom at home, you know, <laughs> not his idea of, of a great time. And um, so feeling incredibly blessed and privileged that both my husband and I can do our work from home and that we have the resources, you know, our kids can continue their education from home and all that kind of thing. But man alive, being cooped up 24-7 with my family for a year, you know, it's I love them, but <laughs> um, <laughs> so there, there been, there's been a platinum lining on the COVID cloud of, of walks that we've had. Um, we regularly get out and go for walks and, you know, conversations we've had that have been really important. And this season... This parental season is is huge, um, having emerging adults um, and the scaffolding release, scaffolding release. You know, it's it's, it's deeply demanding. And then in in an era era of COVID, it's it's um, demanding in a really particular kind of way as they're finding trying to find their way in a world where the normal the quote unquote normal things just aren't, yeah. aren't available and don't work. You know, so there's that component. Um, and then, of course, you know, all the events of this summer, this past summer with uh, George Floyd's murder and all the, 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 the things that were happening, you know, the protests and, and various things. And in the midst of it all, I was writing a book. And so that was just really profound, deep soul work, you know, as it was um, just, yeah, it, labor. <laughs> I was laboring, you know, kind of giving birth to another child. Only the labor was months long instead of hours <laughs> Um, so, and, and being part of a community where my husband and I are part of a bilingual, uh, intergenerational, multicultural church, intercultural church. And so how do we love well in, in this season, you know, and be, be part of a community, um, yeah, this Latina community, um, with a whole variety of stories and reactions to current events, um, how do we how do we engage that and be a part of it? Um, I I don't I don't have I don't feel like this has been the key, Doctor Phil. You know I'm you know it's it, it's been really a daily try to be faithful to what's in front of me and um, and cry out to God because there's been you know students so many of my students have been sick, had family members that are sick, lost family members, had to be their, their pastoring churches that are dealing with all sorts of things. You know, they're in the middle of, they're in these various cities where various different things are happening and they, they're trying to lead through that. Um, just so much going on in their lives, you know, and, and trying to, okay, how do I balance? I, I kind of have to meet course objectives because there's stuff you have to do when you're doing a degree but at the same time how do I be human with these people and how do I be you know pastoral and and be be a space um, create a space for conversation a space for learning and growing um, in the midst of it all um, so it's a big giant muddle of okay, show up and try to be as faithful as I can to what I sense in this moment. What is the Spirit's invitation um, in, this, in this given moment um, and receive of God's resource for that invitation? Okay. What have you learned about yourself, about others, about this nation, about God 
and, and how God might be forming us even in this season, collectively and individually. But what have you learned um, as you pause and reflect and take those walks? Yeah. Well, there's a couple, couple of different channels here, if I think about what I've learned, you know, so, um, the, the circumstances around COVID and the isolation that that's provoked um, and the, the varying responses, you know, so I have community members, family members, friends who are, it's a hoax, you know, it's, it's, a, it's all a scheme, whatever, whatever, you know, and so, and so kind of on the one side and on the other side, I, I have other friends and family members and church members who are, who are really fearful to go anywhere or do anything. And so kind of trying to figure out how to be community in the midst of that, how to be people. And so I'm, I'm definitely for sure, for sure. I'm an introvert. Absolutely. No question. I always knew that. Um, um, social chit chat is exhausting to me. Um, I do it because it greases the, you know, it's part of, um, social currency, you know, you need to do it to connect with people. So I do it. Um, I just come home and take a nap after, um, but then now with all this isolation, I discovered, hang on, I am, this is not good. I just, I, I love being on my own and thinking things and reading and pondering and, you know, doing work um, solo, but man, I need people and I need community. And how do I do that? You know, so there've been some things of learning of, okay, I just need to take initiative to figure out how to meet with people safely in, in an appropriate manner, but I need 3D people. And that's just been really striking to me. Um, how my limbic system, you know, it's like, I feel it viscerally when I see somebody, it's like, it's great talking with you as we're doing right now. And I see you on the screen and, you know, I can see your expressions and hear your tone of voice and everything. But, but when we got together the other day, yeah. you know, we had a cup of coffee yeah. and we're in person. I'm like, oh, yeah. 3D film, you know, it's just great. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. So, so that's been kind of a, hmm, um, what does this mean for, you know, certainly connections and where I invest in, in community, um, and then the other the other stream is is a stream that's not new to this year. It's it's been part of the trajectory of the last six or seven years. Is is looking at um, society and the the fundamental way in which um, our nation is built around systems of injustice, with a layer over it that that provides a mythology of equity and a mythology of. Um, agency, you know, that anybody can be anything that they want to be. Um, and that's been longer than this, just this season, but mm. this season has provoked uh, sort of engagement in different ways, uh, in some ways access, you know, there are all sorts of wonderful workshops and conferences that, that I wouldn't have been able to fly and attend, you know, everything's mm. gone on Zoom. And so I've been part of these really, really rich, thoughtful conversations that that um, I wouldn't have been able to do, or or getting involved in local chapters, of, like I, uh, connecting with um, white people for Black Lives, for example. Um, I just you know, and, learned and, about and, that group. Yeah, yeah, and attending. I just uh, about a month or so ago, I attended a, a workshop on sort of uh, protest 101. Like, as a white person, here's the things you really need to know, and and just fundamental, basic things like follow the directions of the organizers. You know don't go all John Wayne on us, you know, and think you're, you're doing a good thing. You know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. Oh, good point. Thanks. You know, so so there's been this um, access to voices to be able to 
be listening in on conversations that I, I wouldn't have been able to before because of COVID has changed our, our how, we, how we're doing these conversations. Uh, this is really, really helpful. Um, certainly continue, the, the processing of what I've seen in our country and I've seen in the church and, and the um, never, it seems like it's a never ending process of multiple punches to my solar plexus, you know, <laughs> seeing the responses of the community that formed me and, and shaped me in ways that I really value. And then also unpacking the ways in which, mm, okay, no, that shaping, no, I, I, I don't choose to own that. Um, that that is something I'm going to set down because um, I feel God calling me into a, a discipleship that looks different than that. No. Um, that's that's ongoing. Now, now how how is that um, emotionally? Because oh. I I'm familiar with the context you're talking about. I don't know all the details, but you know, just being in that in that space myself, um, when you start to wrestle with all that's been form been invested in, in forming you over the years and now you're confronting those things and to choose it, it feels empowering and even liberating but i would imagine it's also um it's also exhausting it's it can be emotional uh, especially when you when you think about the source of that you know theology or that formation yeah. Yeah. what have you how is that for you emotionally really taxing okay. um yeah well growth is but um i one of the keys to me um has been the practice of lament mm. like, I, I couldn't and, and it's not just this past year it's been it, all the things that i've been processing in the in this last more extended season of time because over and over again, it's just been a gut punch, another gut punch, another gut punch. Like, like literally, I cannot breathe, or I'm I'm literally on my face on the floor weeping, mm. or or literally, I'm like, I I can't eat anything right now because if I eat anything, I am going to throw up. I am I'm so I'm I'm nauseous. I'm sick at heart to the to the depth of being physically nauseous. Mm. Um, you know, lots of really strong emotions of shock, of um, disillusionment, of disappointment, of shame, of um, yeah, just a lot of laying on the floor going, oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy. You know, and I'm so profoundly grateful for the practice of lament, you know, the, the, the ability and, and the model that the Psalms give us and other places in Scripture you know, these psalms of just crying out to God of, of this is, oh my goodness, um, where this is awful. This is just so awful. Um, because, because otherwise, I think it, it, it's easy for it to turn toxic. It's easy for the grief to be self-righteous. You know, I see it and you don't. And, and you know, you're, you're a bunch of, um, you know, what you... you, you Whatever, whatever name calling, you know, it's easy to get into, to turn, to, to look back on the community I've come from and, and mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to be judgmental and, and really self-righteous about, I've been enlightened, why aren't you? Yeah. Um, and instead to really press into the ways in which I, I was complicit, I was, I participated, um, I owned it, I replicated it, um, 
and and in lament and in grief there's healing because there's there's you know jesus paid for this too you know jesus paid for my white supremacy too Mm -hmm. jesus paid for my racism too Mm -hmm. like this this deep deep sin that's a part of my life you know this also was nailed to the cross and and i can come in in abject lament and find mercy and find grace um i've also so lament i've also found rhythm is really important like so i feel it so deeply i feel so overwhelmed and and there um, I can default to an urgency. Like, I got to go do something about this right now. Now that I see this, you know, it's like I, I got to go fix stuff. You know, I got to go challenge this. I got to go see stuff on social media. I got to go write things, you know, in this kind of, ah, I got to take action right this very moment. And and certainly I'm listening to particularly my BIPOC students who are, who are saying, um, you know, what are you doing? What are you saying? Where are you showing up? You know, it's not enough for you to just be thinking about this. Where are you show and, and and that's a legit challenge. You know, that's it's. I I I hear their pain and their desire um, for solidarity. To use the word that you that I I know you've used. Um, that's legitimate. And I also need to attend to where I am in the process and what God is doing right now in the process. You know, so I can't just go roaring out of my house and, and start protesting just willy-nilly. Um, maybe some people do and they're wired that way, but I'm not. Uh, I do participate in protests, but I've learned like rhythms of how do I... I don't have to do everything right now at this moment. Yeah. I don't have to respond to everything. Um I've actually, I'm still on social media, but I, I've actually pulled way back uh, because it's not, at least in this immediate season, it's not a generative space. Um, I, I have private conversations. You know, when somebody posts something that, again, I'm like infuriated or sick to my stomach or it's another gut punch. Um, okay, do I do I say something? You know, they've posted it publicly. Do I say something publicly? Do I contact them privately? I've had lots of behind the scenes. Well, not a lot, but I've had most of my conversations have been behind the scenes. Um, And some of those are really, really super, really, really painful. But that too is part of the process. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, emerging out of a white nationalist Christianity um, into something that I think is more in line with scripture you know certainly revelation 7 9 you know all the people tribes tongues nations everybody all the ethnos before the throne of god you know as i'm pressing into that as the spirit is leading me into that um having having a certain amount of patience having a certain um tolerance for the messiness of the process and and for um a humility and a self-acceptance to say I'm just, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to keep getting it wrong, but I'm going to keep, as I know better, I do better to, to sort of reference uh, the the saying my Angelou is cited, uh, quoted as saying, uh, when you know, you know, you do the best you can. And when you know better, you do better, Mm -hmm. you know, and just keep, keep that's discipleship. That's having my mind transformed being renewed. Um, that's continuing on into the upward calling. Uh, uh, but it, it, it takes, takes time and perseverance and endurance and um, a lot of leaning into the Spirit of God. 
That's good. That's good. You, you mentioned practice of rhythms. Mm. Um, well, I'm going to back up a little bit. Practice of lament. Because I really want mm. people to understand. I think it's important, um, especially for my white friends, to, to hear the, your transparency when you talk about lament. That, I mean, you, to hear you say, like, the shame, the, the frustration. Mm-hmm. Like, those are real emotions yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm actually, I don't know if I trust my, my white friends that don't feel those things. Hmm. I don't know if they're really confronting and doing the work and digging in, doing the soul work. So to hear you say that, I want those who are listening um, to, to really take that in, to your, your transparency in. And I, I think it's important. Um, I, I practice lament as well. And I don't think that's something we do collectively as a, as a nation or as a church, really. But when I was in that context, and I think about this often, when I was in that evangelical, we call it diverse churches, but it's still homogenous culturally. Yeah, yeah. And yeah it's diverse. It's a diverse church congregation population, but the leadership yes. is white. Yes. So the structure is white. Yes. You just fill that structure full of diverse stuff and say, woo, look, we have diversity. Yes. Anyway, go ahead. And... There was there were time, I had many conversations privately, from executive mm-hmm. pastor to um, lead, other pastors, leaders in the church, congregants, and I did not, I didn't have the language or the confidence to speak with theological authority. I guess I could say mm. about race and racism. That's something mm. I learned maybe five six years ago when I began my time at Fuller. And so I lament that season. Mm-hmm. I lament having that platform. And I had I, 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 I challenged behind the scenes. I had no problem doing that. I spoke up when I didn't have an amen choir backing me up. It was just me. But on the, on the pulpit, because I wasn't sure um, being in that context, I, I lament not, not speaking. But again, that's where I was in that season. So yeah. I don't yeah. beat myself up too much. But then the practice of rhythms, and one of the rhythms, one of the things, because you said, you know, this tendency to want to go out and just, I got to post something, I got to write something, I got to say something, right? Yep. So I've been practicing waiting. Uh. And the beautiful thing is, <laughs> this is something I learned with spending money. Like when I go into a store, if I really want something, I'll say, okay, I'm going to leave. If I really want this and it's still on my mind a day or two later, I'll come back before I spend the money. And oftentimes right. I don't really want it. So right. I ended up checking my, my spending habits. So I do the same thing when it comes to saying stuff on social media. Like I need to say something because this last video that came out, I need to say something. Yep. And then I just started waiting. And it, everyone's already saying something. And if I really have something I need to say to add to this conversation, then I will. But I usually will wait a, 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 day, a few days or even a, a week or so and really think mm-hmm. about what do I want to add to this conversation. And that's helped me a lot. It's helped me to not put stuff out that I wish I, oh, I, didn't, even, I didn't necessarily have to, have to say that. So that's part of the rhythm the practice of the practice of waiting is, is part of the rhythm that I've, I've been developed. It's part of how I've kept rhythms is yeah. wait, just pause, breathe. Like you said, breathe in, breathe out before jumping in the fire. Um, That's good. 
One, one of my, speaking of the church, one of my frustrations has been the response of the white evangelical church as it relates to race, racism. Um, you mentioned the pandemic, the, the, the virus, and, and even politics. Yeah. Um, even more than what is often said from that group is what is not said, yeah. the silence. Um, because we, we get in these, you know, I'm in these spaces or been in these spaces and we talk about certain issues. I mean, they will get on the bullhorn and talk about this issue, you know, abortion, um, marriage, um, certain things, but then silent on things that are really affecting people's lives. And, and I mean, we can go into a, a plethora of, of, of issues, not just race and racism, but domestic violence. I hardly hear anybody talk about that. But when it comes to race, anything that has to do with race, there's a silence there that I think is deafening and is, is, is hurting. It's, it hurts us. What, what have been some of your thoughts um, on the silence particularly? And, and why, why is the church silent? Um, what will it take for, more to, for, the, for the white evangelical church to be more vocal, more um, demonstrative, more actively participating? What are, your, what are some of your thoughts on that? when it comes to social justice? Oh boy, so many different things there in that question. Um, yeah, so, some of that is the, the reason why I felt that sort of impulse to, I gotta go say something, I gotta go do something because if I say nothing, then I'm just part of that complicit silence that, that reinforces um, the, this, the same injustice over and over again. So if I'm silent, I'm, I'm assumed to be siding with, with the silence of, of the white evangelical church. And uh, it took a while for me to decide that um, I, I need to risk appearing complicit um, so that I can be listening to the spirit. Um, I, you know, if, if I'm speaking because I'm, I'm afraid of how I'm appearing to people, if that's my motivation for me, that's not a good motivation for me to speak. Like how people see me is not a reason for me to speak mm. and not speak. Um, and, and really, um, way too much of what white even I've seen of white evangelical leaders, uh, they're speaking comes across to me, I don't know the intentions of their heart, I'm talking about the impact, comes across to me as being motivated by, I want to appear to be on the just side of this issue. And, and that is just, that's a problematical, how I appear and, and, and it's virtue signaling. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the good ones. See me as one of the good, we're, 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 we're the good ones. And mm -hmm. it's like, that's just, nobody's fooled by that for long. Maybe some of your white folk might be, you know, but, but pastor put out a statement. Okay. That's nice. Uh, but let's talk about how the person sitting next to you in the pew feels about what you just did. Um, you know, so it's, it's just way more complicated. Um, in terms of the silence of, white evangelical believers, churches I know, pastors I know, um, community members that I know, you know, it's, of course, it's striking to me, you know, something happens and, 
and I go on my social media feed, right? And I'm my BIPOC colleagues and friends and pastors, you know, are saying something about something that's happened and it's chirp, chirp from, from the, the white church. Um, I feel, you know, here's the thing. I, I want to be careful how I say mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid that so much of the worldview within the white evangelical church in the United States has been so caught up in, in a narrative of, of white exceptionalism and so invested in we're, we're the people that have it right. You know, we, 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 and it's so fear-based right that you know we have to we have to hang on to the truth the eternal truth of scripture and we've got it right you know mm-hmm. and so there's this this profound fearfulness that ends up in idolatry um and and i i've heard more and more um been in some of the conversations i've been in heard more and more of of people kind of throwing up their hands and saying i just i i don't i don't think the white evangelical church can change like there's no there's no awareness of a need for repentance, and if you can't acknowledge your brokenness, you know how it can't be healed. Um, it it wouldn't surprise me if white evangelicalism, as we know it right now, increasingly is both. Uh, it already is increasingly um, polarized, right? And increasingly firmly in a particular political camp, firmly in accepting of a particular worldview, um, seeing politics and social, um, social dynamics and all kinds of conversations in a particular way that, that it's, it's, it's the Bible wrapped in a in U.S. American flag, you know, it's white Christian nationalism. And I, I, I think Jesus cares. I think Jesus loves those people and those communities, I think Jesus, I think God's desire is for their healing and restoration of those communities. Um, but God led me in this past year, one of the places I was spending a lot of time was in the book of Jeremiah. And I was not volunteering to be in the book of Jeremiah, let me tell you. It's like <laughs> when I sensed God leading me to Jeremiah, I'm like, oh, please no. I like not Jeremiah. No, I do not. There's nothing about Jeremiah's ministry that I want to model my life after. Just do I really have to, (laughs) you know? So, but, but I spent time just, just, um, marinating in Jeremiah and, and how like Israel we are in the, in the U S American evangelical white church. Um, how like Israel, you know, God is our God and God has been faithful and God has done these great things. And God's always going to do these great things. And God's going to lead us to victory. And we have prophets saying, you know, this is going to pass and God is going to restore everything. And, and we're pursuing, you know, pursuing Christendom where we'll, we'll be the center and we'll be the powerful and we will shape culture. And, you know, we're going to set everything straight. And, and I'm looking at it and reading it through the lens of Jeremiah, um, and some of the timing sometimes, particularly in the election season, the times when I would read certain things, you know, when certain events would happen, I'd be like, oh, Jesus, oh, Lord Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> How, what am I supposed to do with this? But, uh, you know, so I, if there's not repentance, it will pass away. And, and But here's the thing, the white evangelical church is not the kingdom. Yeah. 
right? The kingdom is the kingdom. And the white evangelical church is is a one particular cultural social expression of response to the kingdom. Mm. Uh, And and God, you know, I, I pray, I hope, I hope, I hope that like powerful revival breaks out and there's repentance and and renewal and and people turn to God and 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 lay down these social cultural historical idols um, and and recognize them for the demonic idols that they are and and find renewal and hope I hope so and if it doesn't happen God isn't done you know God God always has a remnant God always has yeah faithful people. God continues to press in and, and call people and bring revival and bring renewal and, and you know, bring the kingdom. Um, so what would it take? I don't know. The spirit of God falling powerfully. Do I expect the, the evangel- white evangelical church to speak up? Actually, no, I don't. But God is at work. And so there are leaders and their communities and their congregations there are individuals um that that god is working in and and drawing and inviting into a broader richer um more faith-filled faith of of not having to have that safety and certainty not having to be the center of culture but but no my faith rests on that same spirit that that fell on this little isolated group that had had their leader crucified you know and, uh, that went out under the power of the spirit it really vulnerably and marginalized um, all over scripture I'm, I'm talking about acts but all over scripture God is the God of the marginalized. So why should we be afraid to be mar- culturally marginalized? Yeah. You know, it was it was never it, my faithfulness. God's work in the world was never about my being central in culture ever. Um, it, over and over in Scripture, like when the community got into trouble, was Old Testament was when they got central. Yeah. You know, but most yeah. of the time they were marginalized. And God keeps God keeps showing up. So that's that's my that's my expectation that God will keep showing up and and it. It will, I expect it will probably move on from the evangelical church, the white evangelical church. Maybe not. Maybe God will do something powerful and we'll have a whole new evangelical movement that's, that um, presses into uh, doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. Yeah. You, you wow, that was, that, was, that was good. <laughs> that was good. But you, I want to hone in on that word remnant. Mm. Um, I remember being a pastor saying, my, being frustrated. Um, I'm not a fan of mega, mega model, yeah. mega church model. This is not an indictment. This is not me just condemning. This is just a crit- critical, me critiquing. Um, mm. I'm not a fan of it. I am a fan of the intimate spaces where you can truly mentor and disciple and be in community and know people and walk with them. And I remember being frustrated as a pastor saying, all these people are leaving on Sunday nights when we had our service. There would be four or 500 people in there, young adults mostly. It was young adult ministry, college young adult. How many are actually reflecting on what was preached, praying about it, delving back into scripture, mm. uh, practicing it, talking about it? 
And how many are actually coming back the next week unchanged and just, just checking off the list? And I realized that there was a remnant though. I had to, someone encouraged me with stories of people who were doing it. It was just much smaller than the bigness of the Sunday service. Sure. And so I was, I got encouragement from the remnant. And I feel the same thing in, in this, this conversation and this with, with, with race, racism, justice work, that it's the remnant. And I think about Elijah, as you were talking, I was thinking about Elijah um, yeah. and God yeah. had what, 450 prophets when Elijah was anxious and stressed and God was at peace with the remnant. Yeah. Yeah. And so just, just now hearing you talk about the remnant, I, I feel like, like that's what God is saying to me now is mm-hmm. be at peace with the remnant. Yeah. The work that you're saying that God is, God will still show up and God is still working. God is working through the remnant. And might we be underappreciating the remnant? Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. The ones yeah. that, you know, my, my, my guest last week, Sarah Dornbos, she's part of the remnant. Uh, and there are many more. Um, there may not be the loudest ones because of what we, we see, but I'm encouraged by what you just shared. And um, I think, again, I want people to really listen to, to what, you're, what you're sharing. This is good stuff. This is, mm. this is good stuff. Um, what does thinking theologically or, or just generally, what for you does white allyship look like? What, what does that work look like? And can it be counterproductive? Is there a point where it can get to where it's counterproductive? Because you mentioned something earlier about in the um, White People for Black Lives um, yeah. chapter, they, they, this is what you need to do because if you do this, you're going too far. But what does that look like for you in, in your life? And how would you, how would you encourage um, other uh, white friends, white brothers and sisters to engage those who may be re- um, reluctant, afraid? Yeah. Okay. Well, can I, can I frame this by, by saying my, my, um, my ambivalence about the concept of white allyship? Okay. Um, because what I would say to suggest to have suggested to white folks, what I, what I do try to put into practice, um, has to come in the context of, of why I'm kind of ambivalent about the notion of white allyship. And, uh, my, my ambivalence comes in part uh, because of the space between our intention and our impact. Okay. Right? So we say, I, I want to be an ally. That's intention. And often, too often, the impact is different than our intention. Okay. And we get angry because our intention isn't seen and honored. Mm. So, so I, I've seen white folks come charging in. I'm an ally right? And take up all the oxygen in the room. Totally bulldoze the people that have been at this work for decades, right? Listen to nobody. It's like, I'm an ally. You know, it's so cut it out. You know, so there's this, and I've seen white folks be really offended when somebody tries to point that out. It's like, Okay, your intention is to be an ally. Your impact is actually detrimental. Mm. So, so I, I, I get a little um, cautious. I feel a little ambivalent. I, I, I do feel like 
I cannot label myself an ally. So, so I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yes. I, I, I can't. Because it's, it's all about impact, not intention. Yep. So if, if you, in some instance, feel I have behaved as an ally, I've shown up in solidarity, and you name me an ally from that experience, there's a legitimacy to that that is not there with me saying, but Phil, I'm your ally, you yeah. know, so you need to, you need to receive me that way, no matter how I actually feel to you. Um, so that, that's, that's one issue. What comes with that is, is a discussion that we really don't have about the nature of power and how we view power. You know, as a majority culture person in the U.S., as a white person, you know, I've been conditioned through my entire life that I have agency. That I just need to, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and go out there and change the world. I can do that, right? So, so I have this uh, relationship with personal power, and then, and then, well, anyway, I you, you can get me going on the subject of power, you know, and how I how I relate to organizational power, and then social structure power, and spiritual power, you know, all of these layers that we don't unpack and we don't think about. So that's part of why, as a white person charging in to be an ally. I'm not thinking about the ways I engage power and, and how power is at play in a room. So that impacts things. Let me, let me get a little more concrete than that. Um, I may want to be an ally, but when I show up in a classroom, in a seminary classroom, I have the power of being the professor in the class, mm-hmm. right? I have the, the, the socially constructed power that comes with having a PhD. Right? There's a certain amount of power that's, that's accrued to me because, well, certainly because I'm, some because of, of the doctorate, but, but largely because, you know, I'm the professor, so I'm giving out grades, right? So there's a certain induced power, a certain potentially coercive power that comes with the role that I have. And I can want to be an ally, but, but totally step on people's stories, speak over people, um, engage in, in microaggressions, uh, in micro insults. You know, there, there are just so many ways that I, I can have an intention, but my impact is different than my intention. So I get a little, um, I just ambivalent. I don't, I don't necessarily use allyship language particularly. One of the things I do really like, um, well, I certainly like, I've heard you talk about it and it's in your book, go buy Phil's book. It's in your book. <laughs> Um, you know, you talk about listen, learn, lament, then labor, yep. right? And that listening and learning is so important. You want to be an ally? So now I'm into what, I'm, what, what would I say to my fellow white folks? You want to be an ally? Listen, 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 shut up and listen. Mm. And when you have, when, when it rises up in you, like it does with me, people are telling their story, telling their experience, telling their interpretation, talking about what they want to see, you know, and, and the yeah, but rises up in me. Yeah, yeah but, you know, dude, was, was that really a racial thing? Maybe you misinterpreted it. You know, whatever it is, the yeah, but that rises up. I, I've learned that's my signal to shut up. You know, say nothing. If, if I'm yeah, butting, then I need to listen some more. Um, that's hugely important. I appreciate the work. Uh, Rosalie Norman is a, a pastor in Minneapolis, and she just recently finished a doctorate, and she she was talking about white followership and that to me is huge like why why do you want to 
why do you have to be an ally and be in charge of things? Like that is just an expression of white supremacy, people. You know, can you show up and follow? Like show up and follow people of color for a while and then maybe you can talk about being an ally, but you need to follow. And if you've got a problem following, then maybe you need to go away and do some soul work, mm -hmm. listen, learn, lament, mm -hmm. before you show up again for labor. Mm -hmm. That's good, that's good. Uh, many people wanna, wanna skip the soul work. Um, yeah. and, and I think it comes back to what you said about, I mean, we could, you're right, we could, we could sit on that, that, that topic for, for a whole nother episode on power and how it plays yeah. out in this. Um, and that's that's actually what I wrote on to get in the PhD program. I, I think I, I think you read it, read my my paper. Yeah. Um, yeah. I cringed. I don't even want to go back and read it. I'm a different writer now, so I I cringed to uh, I don't want to go back. But the premise of it, I still believe that there has to uh, white, the white community has to take second chair in, in this. In every mm -hmm. other area of society, they have power. Mm -hmm. They're the ones in control. But in this area, to lead us out of this, it has to be people of color, um, yeah. Yeah. because it's an embodied experience. It's felt. It's it's in ourselves the trauma of of, of navigating this. Um, I, I think I'm going to end right there. I, I think what you shared, unless I'm going to give you final words. Anything you want to share to 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 anyone? Um, anything on your heart? I think you, there's so much to unpack but I want to give you that opportunity. Final, last words, the benediction. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I really want to encourage white folks that it, this is a messy thing. It's a messy process. Um, growing in your awareness of your racial, ethnic, cultural identity as a white person is, is uncomfortable and messy. Um, and that and that that's okay. The spirit of God is still at work in that. Like like you said, you know, you look back on that that paper you wrote. That was a good paper, Phil. Where you were at that point in your development, that was a good paper, and it did its work. You got into the PhD program, right? Mm -hmm. So so I look back on things I taught or, or ways I impacted people, and and there is some definite grief and mourning. <laughs> and you know how many how many people did I wound? I don't know, and I have to leave that. I have to leave that to the Lord. It's, I can't, but it can motivate me to keep pressing in. Here, here's what I do. This is, I, I can't be perfect. There's that part of me that I just, I want to be perfect. No, that is a ridiculous goal. What, what I need to be is a disciple and, and my, my repentance I, is both regret and turning around and doing better. Uh, as the spirit of God leads me. So, so be okay with the mess and, and keep going and press into it and show up and listen and follow. Um, one of the best ways we can steward the power that we have, cultural power that we have, is bring it with us and follow, follow, follow. Put it, put it, offer it in service to two leaders of color who are doing something. You know, find find pastors and leaders that, that you can sit under and follow and and um, and contribute the gifts that God has given you in that environment. Um, I'm so grateful, 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 grateful for the mercy of God and the grace of God. 
Um, It drives me crazy when I realize the ways in which I have wounded and injured people, the ways in which I was oblivious. You know, I couldn't even really hear people's stories. I didn't understand it. I couldn't hear it. Um, it, It's so, I, I grieve, but that grieving just doesn't have to be toxic. It doesn't have to turn inward and self-hate. It doesn't have to turn outward into judgment and criticism. Um, It can be a a really generative space of of the the work of the Spirit. And so press into it because God is good. Mm. Um, God is good. And and he who began a good work in us is faithful, 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 faithful. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. I feel like I I need to go... um, pay my tuition for this last hour. <laughs> this was good. This was so good. Susan, Dr. Meros, I'm still mm-hmm. getting used to that. Thank you for, for being here, um, for sharing your wisdom, your insights from calling and formation to rhythms to uh, the silence of the evangelical church, giving insight there, um, your transparency. And, and, I, and I tell you, I, those who are still listening um, when I say humility, there are not many professors. Because what, what she what she's talking, she's walking. Mm-hmm. And my my respect for you, Dr. Merrill's, went through the roof when you when you took um, Dr. Seacrest's class. Mm-hmm. That's and a great class. Not many professors are gonna be willing to to humble themselves to to do that. Not only that, when you were gone out of town, you would, yeah. you would still, you would, you, what did, did we, did we, did we Skype or how did we do that? I think it was Skype. Yeah. You, we yeah, Skype it was on your phone. On, you yeah. put up your phone yeah. so I could listen in on the class. Yeah. You could have been off doing your own thing, working, you know, relaxing while you were out of town, but the class was important enough for you. And you don't even realize you were, that was teaching and mentoring me. And I was TA in that class and you, you called in, I think we did it twice where you Skyped in because you wanted to be there. It mattered. Mm -hmm. That's the model for me. That's the professor I want to be. And and one thing you taught me in our first class, and I'll I'll end on this because you, you talked, you, you pointed to Paul. Paul was a lifelong learner. Yes. Yes. And you pointed out little indications of the evidence that he was still learning, even in the letters to Timothy, where he was, uh, he finished the race. He's where, where are my yeah. parchments? Yeah. And so, so Send he, me my books. yeah, Send me my books. he was yeah. still studying. He was still learning. He was still growing. He had not arrived. And you modeled that for me. And that's the professor. That's the podcaster. That's the, the writer I want to be. So thank you so much mm-hmm. for your witness, uh, for your, your grace, your mercy, your love for me, um, your investment in, in, in my life, um, and for being here, man. I, I just, I'm just grateful. So thank you. Well, it's an honor. Thank you. You're welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll talk to you soon. You can follow Dr. Merrills on Facebook at Susan Merrills, that's M-A-R-O-S, and on Instagram at S-L-M-A-R-O-S 411. My hope is that you are informed, inspired, and challenged by this episode. I also want to remind you that my book, Open Wounds, 
A Story of Racial Tragedy, Trauma, and Redemption is on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and FortressPress.com. Also check your local Barnes and Nobles for copies as well. Thank you once again for being here, for listening, for joining me, and parking at the intersection.